Turn with me then to Proverbs. We'll continue the ongoing week by week reading from Proverbs. And the bulletin has the wrong passage. Uh, we're reading Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, beginning at verse 13 and reading down through verse 18. This is the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God the Father instructing his son, conceived with perfect obedience by his son Jesus. And we are to live by this wisdom as God's sons and daughters. Verse 13. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than the gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. And those who hold her fast are called blessed. Well, as we have read this word, and as we're about to read from 1 Samuel, uh, let us pray together for God's blessing. Truly, Lord, your wisdom is more precious than gold, silver, or jewels. And yet we cannot hear wisdom declaring itself to us. We cannot value her. We cannot receive her. Unless you, Lord, give us hearts to seek your wisdom, to fear you, and to desire, above all other things, the wisdom that is found in its fullness in Jesus Christ and is revealed to us throughout the scriptures. So, Lord, as we continue to read your word and as we hear it proclaimed, we pray it would be your wisdom, even Jesus Christ himself, our faithful shepherd, speaking to us and leading his sheep. Give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. We pray in his name. Amen. So turn with me, please, to 1 Samuel. <clears throat> I'll let you know a little secret. A week, was it a week ago you almost were in the hospital still? Yeah. Uh, we didn't know if the pastor would be up to preaching. And so the elders asked if I'd be ready to stand in. So I, since you were ordaining somebody in the morning, I thought, well, this would be a good sermon at the evening. But it wasn't necessary. Uh, but now I've been asked to fill the So I thought I'd go ahead and use it. Uh, First Samuel, we're going to read a portion of chapter 13. <clears throat> Coming into the middle of the history of King Saul. And we take it up at 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. We will read down through uh, verse 15. 
This is God's Word. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was in Geba, and the Philistines heard it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, and said, Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, the people were hard-pressed. The people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered in Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. You got a new job? Great. You needed a job? A job you wanted? Second week there, you're 20 minutes late for work. Oh, you had reasons, lots of reasons why you were late. 
But when the boss saw you, he said, you're fired. But, but, you're fired. No excuses. Does that sound just? Not even a warning. Just, you're late once, now you're fired. Well, when we read 1 Samuel 13, the response of Samuel to King Saul, which is really God's response to King Saul, may strike us the same way. For one offense, for one mistake, God is going to fire Saul, end his dynasty, replace him with another king. What's with Samuel? What's with God? What are we to learn from this? That if you mess up once, God will be done with you? That's not the lesson. It's not the lesson of the Word of God everywhere else. But what is the lesson? Well, let's look at the situation facing Saul. We might call it Saul's problem, King Saul's problem. And then look at King Saul's sinful response to that problem. And then consider God's response to Saul, and finally God's promise. Well, we're near the beginning of Saul's reign. Uh, he was recognized, he was set apart and recognized as king. And then sometime later, everybody assembled at Gilgal, which was where Israel first camped on the west side, west side of the Jordan River uh, in the days of Joshua. And he was anointed as king, recognized by the entire nation as their king. Uh, Saul went back to being a farmer on his dad's farm. At this point, he was not carried away with visions of grandeur. And it's at that point that uh, Ammonites attacked, viciously attacked, uh, the people of Israel on the east side of the Jordan River. And... The Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. He was filled with a righteous anger against the Ammonites. He summoned uh, a levy of, of, of Israelites from across, uh, across the land to go and fight the Ammonites and defeat them. They were utterly defeated. And Saul gave God the praise for that. So that's kind of where we are at chapter, the beginning of chapter 13. The Ammonites were a problem. But the Philistines were the real problem. Philistines had their cities on the plain, on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. A very favored land for farming. They were prosperous. They had professional armies. And the Philistine cities were united in a league. Uh, there's a technical word for it. Hebrew scholarship, never mind that. Uh, they're united in a league. They acted in concert. And despite the significant victory over a Philistine invasion recorded in 1 Samuel 7, by the time we pick up the account in chapter 13, Israel is now really an occupied 
semi-conquered country. Philistines have outposts and forts, more than one place. We read on in the chapter, we find that the Philistines forbid the Israelites to have blacksmiths so that they can't forge steel weapons of war. They have to go to the Philistine cities to get their hoes sharpened and their plows sharpened. Uh, so they are an occupied subject people. Uh, think of it this way. It's the 1860s in the west of the United States, and the native peoples are still largely independent, but forts, U.S. Army forts, in a string from north to south, and pushing steadily west, and the uh, natives are really a subject people, though they won't admit it. And that's kind of where uh, Israel is with the Philistines. The Israelites are the Indians uh, who are subject without, uh, well, maybe they do admit it. Well, that, that's the situation at the beginning of chapter 13. Uh, <clears throat> after his victory over the Ammonites, uh, apparently seemed a, a good time to Saul or to Saul and Jonathan or maybe just to Jonathan uh, to now strike a blow for independence against the Philistines. And so Jonathan raids the Philistine uh, garrison at Geba. Geba. Our Hebraeus can tell us how to say that. Uh, and defeats them. So Jonathan has started the ball, and the Philistines react. As the people of Israel say when they hear about this, Saul has defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel has become a great stench to the Philistines. Philistines have a professional standing army of thousands. Saul has a standing army, if you can call it that, of 3,000, and they're not even armed with the latest weapons. <clears throat> Saul issues a general call-up. The, the trumpet is sounded throughout the land, but, but the Philistines begin their march toward the Israelites with an overwhelming force. Thousands of chariots, soldiers without number. And what's Saul have? 3,000. Plus any who will hear the call, any farmers <laughs> from north to south who hear the trumpet and decide we've got to go fight. Got to go fight for, for our king, got to go fight for the Lord and for Israel. Uh, but there's such fear among the Israelites. <laughs> they go into hiding, caves and cisterns. It, it, it's like the days of Gideon, uh, threshing wheat in the bottom of a cistern and hoping the, uh, the enemy doesn't see him. Uh, it, it's a terrible situation. Refugees are crossing the Jordan River uh, to find safety in Gilead. Uh, Saul has gone again to Gilgal, or maybe never left Gilgal, not quite clear. Tactically, that's not a bad move because it's 
Gilgal on the Jordan is beyond the reach of the Philistines immediately. It's just a matter of time. But for the moment, there's time perhaps for the army to come, for the people to volunteer, for the army to build up and be ready to meet the Philistines. But, but, that doesn't happen. Uh, people are deserting. The Philistines are coming and people are deserting. The situation is desperate. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sure that one time or another in your life you've faced desperate circumstances. What do desperate situations tempt us to? Desperate situations often tempt us to desperate actions, to make rash decisions, which are often sinful decisions. And then later we, I should have prayed, I should have thought, I should have taken, but we've done it. And sometimes the consequences of our rash action in a desperate situation only makes it worse. Well, Saul's situation is desperate. And he responds in a desperate and sinful way. It's implied by the text that Samuel had told Saul that he, Samuel, would come to Gilgal in seven days. I guess that means seven days from when the crisis began that he would come and that he would offer sacrifice so that the Lord might bless his people and give them victory. Saul waits the seven days. Seventh day, no Samuel. Now, I think this is probably 6 a.m. and the sun's just peeking over the horizon. But no Samuel. Saul's losing men. He's down to 600 now. Verse 15. Saul's the king. It's on him. He must act. He does act. He offers the bird offering so that the Lord will favor his people with victory. And just as he's finishing doing that, who should appear? But Samuel and Saul goes to greet him. And there's no hug and kiss here. Samuel says, what have you done? I remember hearing those words from my father or mother on a few occasions. And it wasn't because I'd done something right. And my children have probably heard it from me. Samuel is not pleased. And Samuel's displeasure reflects the displeasure of God himself because Samuel is God's spokesman. Now, you know, at first glance, it might appear that Saul is guilty of little more than impatience. It's something we can all understand. In fact, I've always found Saul to be someone I think I would have loved and felt sorry for, for a great deal of his sad reign. Well, 
I'll pass that up for now. <clears throat> what was Saul's thinking? Well, we're pretty much told what Saul's thinking was. He has an answer to Samuel for what he did. What should I, I'm, I'm, I'm Saul now. What should I have, as king have done? Keep waiting on the priest until we're all totally defeated, dead on the ground? That is certainly the presumption of Saul, the assumption of his thinking. Is there trust in God in that thinking? There is not. I say we can understand Saul. We've been in situations that are desperate. We had to act. And like Saul, we may say, I had to force myself to do it. I knew it was wrong, but what else could I do? It's like Aaron and the golden calf. The people forced me. And we, we threw the gold in and out came this calf. Aaron, Saul, you, me. It is our nature to excuse our conduct, our sinful thinking and choices, to look for the reasons why, well, okay, it wasn't right, but it wasn't so bad. Give me some slack. So we act and so we defend ourselves until the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He may not send Samuel to look you in the eye and with stern voice say, what have you done? It may just be the Holy Spirit provoking your memory to hear scripture that you need to hear and that calls you to seek the Lord's forgiveness in repentance. Well, that's the opportunity before Samuel, before Saul here. Why is God so hard on Saul? That was kind of our opening question. Is this just? Is this fair? Seems like making a big deal of nothing or something little. Well, how many days did Samuel say, I'll come to Gilgal in seven days and offer sacrifice? Seven days. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. The pressure within Saul is building up. The fear within Saul is building up. Day seven. I've got to act. It was a test. God was testing the willingness of Saul to submit himself to the Lord's word spoken to him by the Lord's prophet Samuel, who had anointed him as king not that long before. What Saul did was an outright violation. No king in Israel was permitted to offer sacrifices. That was made very clear in Numbers 18, 7. God told uh, the priests, guard the sacrifices, guard the temple. If any stranger comes to involve himself in the offering of sacrifice. He's to be killed. That's Numbers 
1807, that's pretty clear. Later on in the history, one of the kings went into the temple to offer sacrifice, and he was instantly stricken with leprosy and ended his reign, separated from the rest of the kingdom. So Saul was clearly committing sin against the law of Moses, the covenant, the covenant law of God. Also, God had spoken a clear word to him through his prophet Samuel, that he would come. Samuel would come and offer sacrifice. Saul disobeyed in an especially egregious manner for a king of Israel. Every king of Israel, and for most of them, this wasn't how they thought, but it's how they should think. Every king of Israel should have understood that God is our true king. He is our covenant Lord. And this earthly king is the servant of the heavenly king. This earthly king's right attitude is to believe and trust what the heavenly king says in his word. Whether it's the Torah, the five books of Moses, or the words of prophets God sends like Samuel. And the king is, Saul being the first king, is a precedent setter, you might say. If God lets him get away with excusing his serious sins, then what, what kind of precedent is that setting? Well, what is a king of Israel? He is a steward under God over the nation to lead them in God's way of righteousness, to lead them in trusting and obeying God. Together with the priests, the king and the priest are the leaders of Israel under the word of the Lord. God's king must always obey God's word he must be a man after God's own heart. What is God's own heart? Well, what is revealed of the heart of God is revealed in his saving actions, also in his judgments, and in his revealed word through Moses and the prophets. For us, the whole of Scripture, the apostles and prophets also of the New Testament, The king must always obey God's word. He must be a man after God's own heart. The heart of the king must desire to understand from the word of the true king what is in the heart of the true king and adore him for it and be obedient to him. Now, this is true today. The Church of Jesus Christ is the Israel of God in the New Covenant era. Our King Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father. But there is a real sense in which he mediates his rule 
through men to whom he, by the Holy Spirit, has given gifts uh, to govern his church? And what is the calling of pastors and elders? It is to pay heed to the word of God. To lead the people of God in the path marked out by the word of God. Not make up their own mind contrary in any way to the word of God. Trust and obey. It's a good hymn for that. Saul thought he could obey God's command, but still obtain God's blessing by offering sacrifice in disobedience. Now let's, let's understand Paul's, Saul's thinking here. This is pagan, pagan thinking. This is the thinking of idolaters. The holy ritual will force the deity to do what we need him to do. Does that sound familiar? A few chapters back in 1 Samuel, Philistines defeat the Israelites. Brilliant thought. Let's force God to fight for us and take the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. The effect it had on the Israelites was they fought even harder, defeated the Israelites, and took the Ark of the Covenant. It was a terrible, terrible thing. We'll force God to do our bidding by taking the Ark of the Covenant into the battle. I can manipulate God to do what I hope, what I want him to do by engaging in holy rituals. Proverbs 28 verse 5 was written a little later than Saul, but uh, listen to this word of God. He who turns away his ear from listening to the law even his prayer is an abomination. I was once asked to visit a family whose son had nearly killed himself in a motorcycle accident. It was paralyzed and uh, just barely conscious. The house was filled with Catholic images, statues. The mother went to Mass every morning. Uh, it, was, it was pitiful, really. And it was clear that she thought, the more I engage in holy ritual, the more likely it is that God will do a miracle for my son. Proverbs 15, verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. You cannot manipulate God by rituals. That's a pagan way of thinking. We had two rituals this morning. We had baptism and the Lord's Supper, ordained by God. 
as burnt offerings were ordained by God in Saul's day. But we do not engage in these rituals thinking that we bind God's hand to do our will thereby. They are gifts that we receive with gratitude and pray that the Holy Spirit will use them to strengthen our faith and our commitment to serve the Lord. What are sacrifices for? In the case of Saul and Israel, forgiveness for sin, yes. But what is required with sacrifices? Repentance. David understood this. Psalm 51, probably familiar uh, to most, if not all. David is pleading with God for forgiveness after the sin he committed with Bathsheba had been exposed by Nathan the prophet. He's truly repenting, and I won't read the whole psalm, but uh, near the end he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. But David understood that he could have a thousand bulls offered to sacrifice for his sin. It would mean nothing if he did not come before God with a heart broken in repentance, humbling himself and genuinely seeking God's mercy and grace. That was not Saul. That was not Saul. Church leaders and congregation, we need God's blessing. The church cannot grow in grace, cannot grow with conversions, cannot grow at all, cannot Please and honor God in any way, unless God, by the Holy Spirit, blesses. Preaching of the word blesses our hearts with true humility before him, blesses with his forgiving grace and his empowering grace by the work of the Holy Spirit. Saul is not repenting. Saul is justifying his actions. And that is the tragedy here. Because God sees Saul's heart. God sees all our hearts. And God sees that Saul is revealing in his impatience and his disobedience He's revealing that he does not have a heart for God. God is, not, <clears throat> God is not slamming Saul for one little act of impatience. God is responding to what is in Saul, to the kind of man that he is. He is becoming the kind of man Israel wanted in a king. We want a king like the nations. And though Saul began little in his own eyes, those are Samuel's words later, you were little in your own eyes when you became king. 
He is getting a vision of glory. His glory. That's the kind of man that he is. And it's revealed in his actions. And will continue to be revealed in his actions. For 30 years, God will give him opportunity after opportunity to repent. And it won't happen. What is in Saul? The idea that as king, he can act on his own authority and may disobey God when circumstances, in his opinion, require it. The idea that religion and God exist to serve his needs as king. If you have any of that thinking, repent of it. Repent of it. Saul is not a man after God's own heart. So, the, pro the provision, the promise of God, God promises. In fact, he says, I've already chosen a man after my own heart, a prince over this people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Saul's dynasty is going to end. He will be replaced by a king, a new king, a man after God's own heart. Now, in the history that follows, that's King David. <laughs> you might look at David's life and say, he sinned plenty. But one difference, not one difference, but very, very important difference between David and Saul. When Saul was confronted, he responded, with phony piety, with excuses. When David was confronted, he humbled himself before God in the dust and repented because it truly grieved David to have grieved God. And he expresses that outlook over and over in his Psalms, his desire to know the Lord, to know the Lord's love, to love the Lord because the Lord loves him, uh, to walk in his ways, praying that God would show him uh, the ways uh, that he's supposed to live and walk and conduct himself. But yeah, it's true. Uh, David was seriously flawed. He's not, he's not ultimately the king that God through Samuel is promising to Israel. Don't all answer at once, but who is that king? It's Jesus. Yes, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the true king, the true shepherd of God's people. And he is not a king like the nations. And he makes that so clear in his instructions to his disciples. More than one place. I cite uh, just uh, Mark chapter Ten and verse 45, you may be very familiar with the passage. But the disciples have been squabbling over who's greatest. And Jesus calls them to himself and he says, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Talking to future apostles. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, 
and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. There's the true king, the true king with a heart that resonates with the heart of his father. I and the father are one. The apostle Paul in Philippians generalizes beyond leadership to the whole congregation when he says, trying to take up time while I turn pages here, uh, when he says in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, have the same outlook that Jesus had. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He already had it. So to be clung on to, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born, taking the form of a what? A servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're all called to look at our King Jesus, who is a king after God's own heart, in all the fullness of what that means, even to laying down his life that we sinners might be children of God and citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Now, just as a postscript, we read on in Samuel. We see that God did use Saul's remaining army, as little as it was, to gain a decisive victory over the Philistines. Similar to the victory of Gideon and his little army. And in this, I believe God was rebuking and refuting Saul's earthly-minded unbelief. I can save my people with nothing. It's all grace. In the same way God used the weakness of Jesus, surrendering himself to people who hated him, surrendering himself to death, to bear our sins on the cross, to take away our guilt, that we might be sons and daughters of the living God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess to you that in our heart of hearts, in our nature as we came into this world, we are more like Saul than like your son, Jesus Christ. But you, Lord, in grace of 
brought us out of the domain of darkness, have brought us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. You have set your Son before us in the amazing grace of his saving work and in the majesty of his rule at your right hand, for even now he still serves your church, sending the Holy Spirit to convert and to sanctify, to deliver and to strengthen. We give thanks to you and pray that we may desire to have a heart like your heart, to love righteousness, because through Christ, your Son, we are learning to love you. We pray in his name. Amen.